There are two readings this evening. Uh, The first one is Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 to 31. And then the second reading will be John chapter 10. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them for all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and make them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another, and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. They will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the crops, the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. So turning to John chapter 10. Starting at verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, 
Anyone who does not enter in the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd for the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. This is God's word. Our Father God, please would you be our teacher tonight. We pray that we would hear you address us as we look at these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Look, a lot of people are not Christians. I guess there'll be a number of us tonight who are not Christians. And it seems to me that before people find intellectual reasons to justify a belief that I just don't think Christianity is credible, before people get there, usually people reject Christianity because they're convinced it's dull. That seems to me the main reason. It's not so much uh, doubts about whether Jesus rose from the dead. It's doubts about whether following Jesus would be much of a life at all. That's what really drives it. Think of almost any time an evangelical Christian appears in a movie or film. If they're not a raging hypocrite, then they're usually just incredibly dull and repressed. Uh, you know, I think of all manner of movies I've seen and you've probably never heard of. Uh, and any time there's a Christian, they are just unable to enjoy life. Pursed lips, unfashionable clothing, and no emotion, no exuberance. They don't enjoy life and they're seething with resentment under their placid surface if they ever find anybody else who has been able to enjoy life. When Hollywood needs a repressed, judgmental villain, they go for the guy with the Bible every time, it seems. 
And so the central promise of Christianity, eternal life with God in the new creation, yeah, it doesn't really inspire if you think that life with God will be very dull and empty and limited and repressed. Heaven is not an inspiring idea if God is dull. If Christianity is life with all the dials turned down. And if heaven is nothing more than a never-ending church service on hard pews rather than soft chairs, singing to an out-of-tune organ and listening to endless sermons answering questions you've never asked about things you never even knew about, then who really wants to be there? I mean, who really wants to sacrifice anything for the promise of that? And Jesus says, into the middle of our prejudices and our, our mental image of a God whose greatest fear is that somewhere, someone in his universe has managed to have fun. And Jesus says, into the heart of that, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. The life that you and I crave as human beings, not just existing, but flourishing, thriving, delighting, that life, that's what Jesus promises to you and to me. And he proves that he is the one who can give it to us by laying down his own life for us. That's what we see in this passage. He promises he can give us the life we all long for, and he proves it by laying down his life. Now, this is a, we're not in a new section in John. Um, if you've been around, if you're here last week, you'll know Jesus is in trouble again. He's always in trouble. Uh, the reprehensible behavior that's got him in trouble with the Pharisees this time is there was a guy who was blind and Jesus gave him light. Uh, gave him eyes that could see. It's appalling. What's worse, he's done it on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the day when we're meant to celebrate that God brings rest and wholeness. And so he uses the day of rest and wholeness to bring rest and wholeness to a blind guy. I know it's appalling, it's disgraceful, and the Pharisees agree. And so they, uh, they drag him before the council, and it all spills over. Um, and it carries on. If you look at uh, just above our passage, chapter 9, verse 40, some Pharisees who were there with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now you claim you can see your guilt remains. Jesus is condemning the Pharisees who claim to be the leaders of the people. And this section leads straight on from that. Straight on. And he now turns to address the Pharisees. The the guy who is healed has gone off to go and stare at stuff. And now Jesus is just focusing on the Pharisees. And the first thing he says, um, or the first thing we see is, is that Jesus is gathering a people. Keep up. Verse 1, verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. You sometimes hear it said uh, that Jesus uses analogies like the shepherd and the sheep because he's, he's speaking to simple rural folk and they just wouldn't have understood plain speaking. But his talk of shepherd and sheep is less determined by the people in front of him than by the history that's behind him. Because throughout the Old Testament, God uses the picture of a shepherd and his sheep to picture his relationship with his people, the Israelites. 
Uh, and actually, it's not a very flattering image for God to use because sheep are useless. They are thoroughly vulnerable. If you are a predator, a sheep is just a gift. You know, it's not got scales or horns. It can't run quickly to get away. They have to be protected because they can't look after themselves. And they're not very bright. Sheep struggle to find food and water without being led and pointed in the right direction. They easily follow each other and they get lost. And when God was searching through the whole animal kingdom for the best image of what you and I are like, he said, yep, sheep. It's not flattering, but that's what God says his people, us, are like. Uh, Psalm 77 is a classic place where he looks back on, um, the psalmist looks back on God redeeming his people from Egypt, from slavery. And the psalmist says in the final verse, you led your people like a flock. And then the very next psalm, um, the, the, the climax really of, uh, of that section of the psalms, he says in Psalm 78, as he describes Israel being given their greatest king, King David. Psalm 78, verse 70, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart and skillful hands. God wanted his people to see, he wants us to see, that the relationship between a good, a healthy, a loving king and his people is like a good shepherd and his sheep. But the reality for Israel was rarely so happy. The first reading that we had from Ezekiel 34, if you want to flick that up, Ezekiel 34, who's got a page? There we go, page 865. In the 6th century BC, the prophet Ezekiel graphically describes the ugly reality. You've got scrawny, starving flocks while the leaders gorge themselves, shoving aside the needy, trampling down the food of the needy, muddying the water of those who are thirsty with their own feet so they can fill their own bellies. You think of that wicked thug, Mugabe, his people starving while he and his cronies fill their bellies and Gucci Grace spends more money at Harrods every year than anybody else. Telling his people that the food, that the, the enforced famine basically is fasting, which is good for them. But it's different for he and the other uh, leaders in his, in his cabinet and his military officials because they have a particularly important role and so they can't fast with the people much as they'd like to. Although quite why their food had to be quail eggs and champagne escapes me. But it was self-serving, abusive leadership. And God says that's exactly what it was like for much of Israel's history. Self-serving and abusive But then in Ezekiel 34, God makes a very wonderful and yet a very strange promise. It's wonderful because he promises, enough's enough, I'm going to rescue the flock and bring them into a safe and rich pasture. So um, if you look at uh, 34.11, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, so I will look after my sheep. Verse 13, I'll bring them out from the nations. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and all the settlements. I will tend them in a good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land and there they will feed in a rich pasture. That is heaven in sheep language. They're not very sophisticated animals. It's safe and there's food. Job done. He's describing heaven for a sheep. It's a wonderful promise. But it's also, it's also a strange promise. I don't know if you picked it up as Laura read it to us. Verse 15, God says, I myself 
will tend my sheep. If you want a job done, do it yourself, God says. I'm fed up. I can't trust any of these humans to do it. I'm going to come and I'm going to lead my people. Pretty emphatic. But then, verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them and he will be their shepherd. Now, King David died years before. So who is this new David? Has God changed his mind? Is he confused? Is he having a senior moment? Now, God hasn't changed his mind. What he does is change reality. What he does is he does come down himself to shepherd his sheep. But when he comes down to shepherd his sheep, he takes on human flesh. And he becomes a human being born in the line of King David. And so God and yet a descendant of David tend the sheep. And here in John 10, a descendant of King David named Jesus, who is also God himself, rebukes the religious leaders as false shepherds. And he promises that he is the one who has come to gather the sheep. John 10 verse 3, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now, he goes on to say something that we struggle with. Verse 5, they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. The unpopular thing is that there are strangers who are calling the sheep. Jesus may be the one true shepherd in verse 11, but he is not the only one seeking to gather God's flock. I've said it before, and always it causes ructions, but you have to have a functional category in your head, if you're going to be a Christian, of false teacher, of false leader. Don't be naive. Not every religious leader who says they're gathering people to lead them in the ways of God is actually doing so. Some are leading them away to death. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were the safe option. They were the well-credentialed, charity-supporting good guys that everybody looked up to. And yet Jesus says, in the language of verse 1, they are thieves and robbers who, verse 10, have come to steal and destroy. They claim to be the guides of the people. We saw that at the end of uh, chapter 9 when they say, are we blind too? How dare you imply we're blind? We're the ones who know. We're the religious leaders. We're the ones who can tell you the way to God. But when Jesus teaches them in 10.6, we're told Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. They're utterly clueless, utterly clueless of the ways of God. It was true when Ezekiel wrote in the 6th century BC that there were false leaders leading God's people astray. It was true when Jesus spoke in the 1st century AD there were false leaders leading the people astray. We'd be very, very arrogant or very, very naive if we think we've grown out of that and there are no false leaders today. Do you know the most viewed Christian sermon on YouTube by a church pastor, the most viewed, millions of views, is false teaching. And not just, well, you're just being narrow-minded, you're just a little bit extra. No, no, no. It is 30 minutes of lies, twisting the Bible to make it sound like God will give you anything you want right now. And if you think I'm just exaggerating and, and being a little bit over the top, Remember, this is the most viewed Christian sermon by a well-known church leader viewed on YouTube. 30 minutes. It does not 
mention Jesus once. Not once. False teaching is not an issue back then or an issue out there. It's an issue everywhere at every time. And it's a threat to each of us here tonight. There will always be false shepherds. And so we must be on our guard because many things that promise life will only deliver death. And the test, Jesus says, in verse 3 and 4 and 5, is to listen to his voice. Bring it back to the Bible. What does Jesus say? But just as there are false shepherds, there is a true shepherd. And the promise of Jesus as the one true shepherd is the promise that he has come to protect, to provide. And perhaps most wonderfully, verse 3, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus is not gathering a people. You know, he's got 50 trillion places to fill. Yeah, this hundred people will do, that thousand. No, he's calling by name. He doesn't call a people, he calls individuals. He calls Miller and Elliot. He calls James. He calls Tom. He calls Kristen. Jesus calls by name. All the trillions that he calls but he calls you by name. And he does that so they can enjoy abundant life, secondly. Jesus states what he's come to do as the true leader, his manifesto, if you like. He has come to bring us life. Verse 7, Therefore Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Now it's tricky to work out who he was referring to here, because there were some good leaders in Israel's history, David for much of his reign, Josiah, Samuel. But the majority were poor and they went from bad to worse as history continued. And in his day, well, all you really need to know about the leaders in Jesus' day is that when God's long-promised saviour king arrived to bring eternal life and salvation from sin, they tortured him to death. They're not a good bunch of people. By contrast, Jesus proclaims, verse 9, I am the gate and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. He's not just a way to life. He is the way to life. We find life by coming to him. There is no life, no real life, but the life that Jesus gives you. And as he puts it a few chapters later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The contrast is clear and extreme. Two kinds of leadership, self-serving and self-giving. Most human leadership, and sadly much religious leadership, is self-serving. There's many a populist revolutionary who's swept to power on the promise of turning over the corrupt elites, draining the swamp, whatever it is, and government by the people and for the people, and, and I will be different from all of them. And before long, where are they living but in the palaces? What are they spending the country's health budget on but uh, the jewelry halls and Harrods? But Jesus is very different. He didn't come to take anything from us. He came to give to us and to give to us life. But that's not all that verse 10 says. Look at it. I have come that they may have life and have it 
to the full. Life to the full. Not just life, but life to the full. In John 3.16, famously, Jesus said that he'd come to give eternal life. A life that, that will extend through and triumph over death. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. A life that death cannot break. But here Jesus focuses less on the the quantity of life, the number of years, and more on the quality of life, the depth and the richness of it. And not quite a good life, and not a better than average life. Not better than it is right now. Not even the best life that you can imagine, but life to the full. In other words, and this is important, Jesus saying, life with him will be better with him as shepherd lord than with him as genie. You know what a genie is. You've all seen Aladdin. You know what a genie is. They do whatever you ask, give you anything you want. Imagine what your life would be like if you had those three wishes. Anything you want. Imagine what would your life look like. Anything. Absolutely anything. How good would your life be right now if you could have those three wishes? What Jesus promises you is a gazillion times better. Let me show you why. Life with Jesus as your genie would be life as good as the best thing that you or I can imagine. That's what life with Jesus as your genie would be. But life with Jesus as our shepherd king, our God... That's better than the best life you can imagine. It's the best life he can imagine. All his divine power, all his creative imagination that dreamt up the galaxies of this universe, channeled into giving you life that is meaningful and happy and rich and fulfilled and exciting and fun and adventurous. It will be life beyond your wildest dreams. I think, um, I didn't mention any of the movies I know so that you didn't laugh at my age, but I'm going to make one cultural reference, Blackadder. I think it is the the zenith of British televisual comedy in the 1990s. You can watch it on on YouTube. You've got Rowan Atkinson, I almost said Rowan Williams, but that's a different person entirely. Rowan Atkinson, who is the, the wily, scheming Edmund Blackadder. And Tony Robinson, who plays his uh, quite heroically stupid sidekick, Baldrick, who is obsessed with vegetables. And in the third series of Blackadder, stay with me, the third series of Blackadder, late 18th century, and Blackadder's latest scheme is that he's found out he can basically get rich beyond his wildest dreams, enough money to buy anything he wants by getting Baldrick elected to Parliament, which is uh, corrupt and full of self-serving MPs who have no understanding of the people or the, the troubles of the time. It's a very different era. And um, the, uh, sorry, cheap shots, I shouldn't say things like that. The... Uh, um, and of being, being blackout, things of course go wrong. And he thinks, he's, he thinks he's found a way to get money that will buy him whatever he could possibly imagine. But Baldrick gets his hands on the money first. And Blackadder comes home. Baldrick, where's the money? I've spent it. Baldrick, have you spent all the money? I saw what I wanted. Baldrick, what did you buy? A turnip. Baldrick, How did you manage to spend a million pounds on a turnip? Well, I haggled pretty hard. uh, Predictably, the turnip ends up on Baldrick. Uh, But Baldrick is just a very simple man. 
the greatest thing he can possibly imagine is a very large turnip. And so when he has money to buy whatever he can imagine, he buys a very large turnip. What's the point? You and I are baldric. Compared with what Jesus, God, the God who invented physical matter out of his imagination, compared with what he can give you as his idea of your very best life in eternity, the very best thing that you and I could possibly come up with is no more than a large turnip. It is better to have Jesus as the God who will give you life to the full in eternity than to have Jesus as the genie who will give you whatever you want. Remember, this is God speaking. The God who created your physical bodies and souls. When he says life and life to the full, he's fully aware of what you're like. He knows you have a body as well as a soul. He knows you have powerful sexual urges. He put them there. He knows that you crave deep friendship, people that you can just laugh till you cry with and cry without being embarrassed in front of. He knows that because he designed you to be like that. He knows that you need meaning and purpose. It was his idea to, to make you a being that craved those things. And in the light of all the reality of how he has made you, he says, what I have planned for you, if you trust me, is not just the best life you can imagine, but it is life to the full. And God says that to you and to me. Do you believe him? You should do because of what he says at the end here in verses 11 to 18. Life to the full comes through his voluntary death. You can trust his promise that he is the good shepherd who gives life to the full because he lays down his life for us. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Unlike self-serving leaders, Jesus is not in it for what he can get out of it. So he keeps on serving the sheep even when he gets nothing back from us. Even when it starts to cost him, even when it costs him his life. When King David was a teenager, he tells us earlier on in the Bible that protecting the sheep meant fighting lions and bears. And Jesus loves his flock the same. When sin and death came for you and for me to claim us as their own, to drag us to hell for eternal judgment, Jesus stepped in. And at the cost of his own life, he saved you. Now, the second time Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, he lays down his life. He's got a different emphasis. Verses 14 to 18 is is about how his death opens the way for people from all nations to be saved. You don't have to be descended from Abraham to be part of his flock. But his point in both these sections is to stress, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Now, the New Testament says an enormous amount about the death of Jesus Christ. Unsurprisingly, the cross is the heart of the Christian faith, the cross and the resurrection. But here, the emphasis is that it is a voluntary death, that he lays down his life. That, uh, verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Why does he stress that it's a voluntary death? 
Two reasons. First, if we're going to trust him as the Lord of life, we need to know that he has ultimate power, that no one has the power to take his life away. I mean, why would you trust him for life if he can't even hold on to his own life? Now, a very powerful person might be able to control the moment of their death, to choose when they sacrifice themselves for others. A powerful man might be able to do that. But no man or woman can choose when to take their life up again, having been killed. That moves Jesus beyond the realm of the amazing human and into the realm of the divine. And you can trust a man like that with your life, a man who chooses when he dies and chooses to come back to life. He tells us his death is voluntary so we can trust him for life. Secondly, he tells us his death is voluntary to contrast him with the Pharisees and every other self-serving leader since. The great ones of this world, they basically view ordinary people as beneath them and there to serve them. We're there to buy their products, to like their tweets, and to vote them into power. But Jesus, who has every right to demand anything from us as our creator, demands nothing and gives us everything. No one made him do it. No one forced Jesus to die on the cross for you. He chose to do it because he loves you and he doesn't want to see you in hell where you and I belong. You think about the central rituals of Christianity. We're going to share the Lord's Supper in a minute, which is about how he gives us forgiveness, how he feeds us with all that we need for eternal life. Baptism, how he washes us clean and gives us new life. Look, life to the full is life lived with Jesus as the shepherd. Life to the full is life with him protecting us from sin and Satan and death. Him providing all that we need and him relating to us. Dying to give us the life our sinfulness disqualifies us from. That's what life to the full is. The question is, is that life now or in heaven? And the answer is yes, of course. Uh, okay. Uh, when will we have this life when it, it just won't feel like it could get any better? Oh, that will be in the new creation. A perfect world out there, a pure heart in here, and perfect people all around us. It will not get better than that. A place with no sin, no struggle, no temptation, no disappointment, no regret, no conflict, and no death. And at the heart of it, a perfect relationship with our great God and Savior, who is your soul's greatest longing and deepest joy. And in the meantime? Well, if we're honest, life in the meantime can be hard. It can feel like a daily struggle, dying to my own desires to follow Jesus. And oftentimes, life can just feel mundane and dull rather than exciting and full. And the world can be a bruising place and our hearts are just often full of filth and petty jealousy and bitterness and where other people, as I'm sure we've all discovered, other people can be every bit as nasty and vindictive as we can. But even in the midst of that struggle, the richest and fullest life there is, is the one Jesus brings. And the life that he offers here in John 10, life to the full, is not a life that begins in the future. It's a life that begins now and will be enjoyed more fully in the future. But it's a life that begins now. Even now, he gives you forgiveness. And no amount of sin can exhaust that forgiveness. 
Even now he gives joy that can shine and stand even in the worst and most hideous of suffering. Even now he lives in us by his spirit, speaking to us in his word, hearing us as we pray. Even now he is relating to us. And one day we'll know him face to face. Even now we see a glimpse of just how full and how rich it is to be with Jesus Christ as we, as we see his community, not a bunch of perfect people. But as you see people transformed, as more and more people are shaped by the Holy Spirit into people who are full of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and self-control and kindness, even now, as you enjoy being part of a community like that, you see how good his life is. Come to Jesus for life. And when you've received that life, share it. Because you and I are surrounded every day as we travel to work and study. As we go out with friends. Often when we're at home. We're surrounded by people who are giving their life to things that ultimately will kill and destroy. People who need the life of Jesus Christ. The Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks uh, knew a lot about the difficulties we face in this life. But he also knew how rich and real the promise of abundant life we have in Jesus in John 10 is. And so he wrote in the end of his writings, for a close, remember this. Your life is short. Your duties are many and your assistance is great. And your reward is sure. So faint not. Hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing. And know that heaven shall make amends for all. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And the only question for us tonight is, is that they, including you? We're going to share uh, the Lord's Supper together now. A reminder that he is the shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep.